Lord, we do indeed thank you and praise you this evening for your Son. We thank you for your Word. We thank you for the way that your Word is a light to us. And Lord, it shows us clearly what you've done for us through your Son. Lord, we thank you for the way that it explains to us how much you love us and what you have done for us. Oh Lord, we do pray that you would give us this evening a fresh understanding of what you have done, what you have rescued us from, what you have rescued us to. Lord, we do pray that you would be glorified through this preaching, through this sermon. Lord, I do pray that as I go through what you've laid in my heart, that I would decrease and that you would increase and that you would receive all the glory that is due your holy name. Lord, I do pray that you would be of my voice. Lord, I pray that you would keep the coughing at bay and that, Lord, I would get through this without any fits. Amen. <clears throat> so as you might have guessed from the reading, this isn't necessarily going to be a Christmas message. If I'm perfectly honest, I don't do Christmas messages. I tend to just preach what is the next thing um, that I believe the Lord is, is take, t- taking me to. And this is where we're at, Psalm 92. And in many ways, if you are true to the, the Christmas message, this is really it. It's about giving thanks to the Lord. And that is what this psalm is all about. And what's more is that we happen to have Christmas Day on Sunday, on the Lord's Day, on what is traditionally known as the Sabbath day. And this psalm is the Sabbath day psalm. This was the psalm that was sung in the temple each Sabbath to get the people of God thinking about the Lord and to get them ready to give thanks to the Lord and sing praises to the Lord's name. This is the psalm which they sung. And so the title I have for you is simply the Sabbath song. But one, one question I want to ask, um, I'm not looking necessarily for an answer, it's a rhetorical question, but what is your favorite day of the week? On a Monday, that's probably when I'm at my best form. When I wake up on Monday morning, I am mentally in the best place. I feel as if I've got a bit more energy on a Monday. And so whenever I have something particularly difficult that I know I've got to do in the week, if I can, I would try to make it happen on a Monday rather than any other day of the week because that is when I seem to have the most energy. That's when I seem to be mentally at my sharpest. Wednesday, Thursday, not so much. That tends to be where it starts to to fall apart for me. Um, I'm starting to get a little bit tired. I'm starting to get a bit fed up. Uh, with things. So if I've got anything pretty difficult, I try to avoid those days. Saturday, obviously, for many people, it's a day where you can just kind of down tools, not got work any longer, um, and you're able to just chillax a little bit. But my favorite day, and it has been for many, many years now, is without doubt a Sunday. I grew up in a church that was very lively, uh, had very lively worship. So even before I would have necessarily called myself a Christian, I loved going to church. I had many friends at church. I enjoyed the company there. 
Um, I even quite enjoyed the preaching. My grandfather was the preacher. He was a pulpit thumper. He liked to raise his voice. Uh, and at times, he would also quite enjoy uh, being a bit of a comedian in the pulpit, all very reverently and all the rest of it. But nevertheless, he would uh, fancy himself a bit of that. Uh, and I enjoyed even just listening to the man. But one of the things that I really enjoyed about the church that I grew up in was its music uh, and the fact that it was very free in its worship. And I'm not telling a lie. There were services that we would go to that would start roughly about 7 o'clock and genuinely would not finish until sometimes 11 o'clock or even getting close to midnight at times um, because the worship was going on and on and on. And that in and of itself can be a bad thing. If it's just about the music, if it's only about the music, and I can say as a, a child growing up, for many years it was about the music. But as I got to understand the gospel and the Lord showed me his love and I became a Christian, there was nothing I enjoyed more than being part of the band, being part of the band that would play to, to worship God. In particular, uh, there was a time where my brother uh, Joel and my sister Abby, um, Abby was, was a very good piano player, very gifted piano player. My brother Joel plays the guitar pretty well, sings pretty well, and I would be on the drums, and the three of us together would have some phenomenal times uh, worshipping Steve. You're pretty good. Chris, you're not too bad, but, you know, me, my brother, uh, and my sister, we had something going on, a bit of gelling going on there uh, that was... Fantastic, And what was also wonderful about it was that we all loved the Lord. And we particularly loved singing worship songs, doing hymns together, and giving thanks to God. And I can honestly tell you, there are memories that I have uh, of playing together, of worshiping with each other, that just will stay with me for the rest of my life. No doubt about it. Just moments where <clears throat> I'm on the drums, playing away, uh, we're probably on hymn number six, and it's just heaven on earth. Because it's not just the music, it's what we're playing, it's the, the words of the song, it's the sermon that's preceded it, it is just everything coming together to make me realize my God loves me so, so very much. And this is what this psalm, I believe, is trying to bring us to a place of. It's, it's saying, get to the house of God. And understand this, getting to the house of God, that it is good, verse 1. It is good to give thanks to the Lord. The word good is actually describing uh, the word thanks. So it's actually an adverb. And so really it should say to give good Thanks, that is beautiful thanks, that is pleasant thanks to the Lord. This idea that it's good for us to just do what we've just done, and that is sing to our God. Now, this, the songs that we've just sung, many people in this world would have enjoyed sitting in the pew, listening to those words, or even joining in singing them. Richard Dawkins, many of you would have heard of him, famous atheist, he um, explained to one interviewer that he really enjoyed the Christmas period. 
that he really looked forward going to a carol service and being part of the carol service. He enjoyed singing in the service. And I believe he even gave the interviewer his favorite carol. <clears throat> he, he, he enjoyed it. There is something aesthetically pleasing. There's something just worldly pleasing about the music and all the rest of it. But when you're able to couple this with the knowledge that who you are worshiping is your Lord, that what you're doing is good. It's not just good in the sense of its music or it tickles the ears, but this is good for your very soul to give thanks to the Lord. The word thanks in the Hebrew, if you to go to the, the root word, it, it means to, to with extended hands, as it were, give thanks to the Lord. As, as this act of surrender to the Lord, you're just saying it's all of you. This is everything that has gone on. It is good for me to just open my arms and say, thank you. Thank you to the Lord. And the Lord is the name of Jehovah. That is the covenant name of God. That is that he is the promise-keeping God. And there are some promises within this passage which we are going to uh, hone in on, we're going to look at. But this is the way the psalmist begins. It is good, it is beautiful to give thanks, to open up your arms and just and surrender, say thank you, promise-keeping God, and to sing praises to the name of God, the Most High, the God who is most high, high above everything else, high above all other names. He is the highest. And when we get to verse 2, <clears throat> we have this, to declare, to declare, that is to stand out boldly, stand out boldly and declare the loving kindness of the Lord. To do this in the morning and in the evening, every night, and your faithfulness every night to declare both the loving kindness and the faithfulness of the Lord. Now, the challenge, as it were, is, is that if you believe in what the psalmist is saying here, that it is good to give thanks to the Lord, that you are giving thanks to a God who keeps his promises and who has kept his promises to you, and you can because of that knowledge, because of that experience, you can testify to that. You can declare, you can stand out boldly, and you can say, the Lord loves me. The Lord is faithful to me. Then from that place of joy, the natural progression is that you sing, that you worship. There have probably been moments in your life when you have just been so happy that only really music can express the joy that you feel, the happiness that you feel. The world does this all the time. Not a bad thing by any stretch. It's, we do it when it comes to weddings, don't we? One of the most joyful periods of anyone's life. What is it full of? It's full of music. There's music happening all the time. Why? Because it's a joyful occasion. And music expresses that joy. And so often it is when 
someone achieves something great, when something amazing happens. We've just had the World Cup. And one of the things you will see if you were to watch the celebrations of the Argentinian football team is that constantly they're bursting into song. They're going from one song to the next song. They've got people around them who they don't even know, but because they are Argentinian, they're going to join in in the song too. Why? Because it's an expression of joy. And so verse 3, we have this psalmist who we don't know exactly who it is, but the suspicions are heavily towards David. And he goes straight to the instruments. He goes from saying it's good to give thanks to the Lord, praise the high name of God, declare the loving kindness of God both morning and evening, declare these things and do them on the instruments. Get an instrument of ten strings. Get the lute, get the harp and make this harmonious sound and worship the Lord. Praise the Lord. And brothers and sisters, this all comes from this place in verse 4, where it says this, for you, Jehovah, you promise-keeping God, you, Lord, for you, Lord, have made me glad through your work, through what God has accomplished for him, for the psalmist. And this is what makes the Christian glad. This is what makes the Christian happy. This is what brings joy. It's not, as we often hear in this place, it's not because we've got through Monday to Saturday and we've been good. You know, Santa's happy with us, where we've ticked off the various things that we were, we were trying to achieve, and we've had a good week. Morally, we've done quite well, and we feel fairly good about ourselves. It's got nothing to do with that. It's got entirely everything to do with what the Lord has done through the work that the Lord has done. Verse 4, again, for you, Lord, have made me glad for your work, and I will triumph. I will rejoice in the works of your hands. And what's wonderful about this, it takes all of our circumstances out of the equation. No matter what the situation may be, good or bad, it takes it all out of the equation. So that when we get to the the Sabbath day, when we get to the Sunday, we approach the church, we approach the worship of God, knowing that this is good, that this is right, that we give thanks to the Lord, because He has shown us His love, He has shown us His faithfulness, and we will declare this, and we will do this through singing, through the playing of instruments. Because of what he has done. And that's wonderful. For us here this evening, who may have had a good week or had a bad week, had a bad year, the reality is when you get to the house of God, know this is a good thing for you to do. Worship God. Give thanks to God. Praise God. Enter into the spirit of what the psalmist is trying to get across here. That you need to praise God. And this act, as, it said, as it, I said at the beginning, of when you get to this 
place with God. You just throw open your arms and surrender and offering your thanks. It is, at the same time, saying, what has happened throughout my week, throughout my year, throughout my life? It's now at the door. I'm here, Lord. Arms open wide, and I'm ready to give you thanks. I'm ready to do what is good and to worship you, to praise you. And so I haven't done this, so forgive me, but my structure is aware. That was point one of praises. We praise the Lord. But then we're going to come on to point two. That is the perishing. And we'll finish, as we've made reference to already, with promises. So praises and the perishing and promises. And we're going to look now at the next part of the psalm that deals with the perishing. But it does so in comparing God with the world. And so in verse 5, when we get to verse 5, we have this tremendous statement about the Lord. It says, O Lord, how great are your works. Your works are phenomenal. And we can see this just by opening our eyes in the morning and watching the sun rise. We can see that the work of God is just extraordinary. And how the Lord's thoughts are very, very deep. I was listening to a preacher uh, last night, and he was explaining how um, he enjoys his insects. And he was talking about this beetle. He says, if you look at this beetle, it's nothing to look at. In fact, it's pretty ugly. He said, but if you get it under a microscope, and you just have a look at its shell, and the colors that bounce back from this microscope, he says, it's just phenomenal. It's just beautiful. And to think that God is put all this together, something so small into our a naked eye, just looking at it would be fairly ugly. But once you get down to the, the level of detail that God has created, you see something extraordinarily beautiful. That was just one small demonstration of just how deep God's thoughts go. In fact, the, the Hebrew word for it's very deep, is that it's, there is no depth to it. You can't plummet it. You can't get to the end of it. It is an infinite depth of wisdom, of knowledge, of thought. And brothers and sisters, when we start to consider God and we consider the, the Scriptures, we're just left with this stunning awareness of just how unfathomable our God is. How unsearchable He is. How extraordinary he is. But it is also amazing that as much as we at times through the, our personal study or through the being in the church can get to that realization of how wonderful our God is, there is this stark reality that that world has very little sense of that, of just how amazing God is, of how unsearchable he is, how unfathomable he is. And verse 6 spells this out for us very eloquently indeed. A senseless man does not know. A senseless man does not know. That is, uh, once again, this, this word senseless is barar, B-A-A-R. And what it is saying is that it's a, a man who wastes by burning. He burns up his time by thinking about other things, not really coming to a sense of who God is, but distracting himself with the, the things of life. I had the, quite, a, quite a strange experience this week. 
I had a pretty bad day on Tuesday. Not personally, but just nearly every person I went to meet was not having a good day. Things were tough. Things are tough. We're going through this cost of living crisis. Christmas has not been good for a lot of retailers. It's starting to bite. (coughs) And I was with this gentleman, lovely man, good family, all the rest of it. (coughs) And he was talking to me about the fact that he was now in his 60s. Time is moving fast for him. And he just wanted out. He just wanted away from it. He wanted it to finish because he doesn't know how long he's got left. He doesn't know, he doesn't know what, what's around the corner. He explained how his, his young daughter, at a very early age, had developed cancer on her face. Thankfully, they were able to cure her, but she had a, a damage done to her face that was irreparable. And to this day, and he was in tears as he explained this to me. And he was explaining once again that you just do not know what's around the corner, what is happening. And it was into that I was just very, very briefly able to say to him about the Lord and just pointing to the Savior. But it was very brief indeed. But it was just trying to get him to get a sense that you've got this. You've understood that time is short. But what comes next? And it's amazing. This individual who, like I say, he's in his 60s. He'd experienced much success in retail and with the post office. He, uh, despite the hardships, he knew, he knew he was going to be okay financially. But the reality is he more than likely has just continued on in his senseless state of not really taking to grips of what his eternal reality is. And this is what the majority of this world does, is that it just simply perishes. It goes from the the childhood to their teenage years, to the young adult life, to their middle age, to their retirement, to their old age, and to the grave. And nothing disturbs that rhythm. It just goes in that rhythm generation after generation after generation just goes in this rhythm and it is senseless to not grasp the eternal question of understanding of how deep God is how unfathomable he is and how one day we need to give an account he goes on to say, nor does a, a fool, that is a, a lazy, fat man. That's what the, is it where the, the Hebrew word is trying to get across, this lazy, fat individual. Understand this. This person that will just allow life to just tick on and happen. There's a famous preacher, John Piper, over in America. And he was, back in the year 2000, he preached this fairly famous sermon to a, a huge crowd of young people with some sort of Christian festival. And for 40 minutes, he really tried very hard to get across the gospel to them. And in the, one of the, the, the first remarks he made, he got out an article written in 1998, two years before his sermon, where it was trying to sell the American dream. And the article was explaining about 
this couple called Bob and Penny. And Bob and Penny, 54 and 59 respectively, had been able to take early retirement. They had been fairly successful in life and were able to take early retirement and buy themselves a boat in a very nice part of the US, this 30-foot yacht or whatever it was. And there they were going to spend the rest of their lives playing softball and collecting seashells. And that was it. The last chapter of their life was the collection of seashells. And when they get to the throne of grace, John Piper was able to, when they get before the throne of judgment, I should say, John Piper was able to very um, adequately point out to them that what have they got to show, in particular for the last chapter of their life, other than this collection of seashells. Foolish, senseless, they're perishing. It's difficult at times to be able to see this because when we look out in that world, we think, well, the world is, is just kind of spring, springing up. It seems to be doing all right, thank you very much. Verse 7 spells this out for us. And when the wicked spring up like grass, that is, they, they break forth, they, they seem to just be flourishing everywhere. And when all the workers of iniquity, those who are actively evil, are of iniquity, those who are against God, they just flourish. They're springing up and they're flourishing. And that is so often what the view of us, the view that we see of the world is that they seem to be doing all right. Bob and Penny, it's not too bad. 30-foot yacht, softball, whatever that is in America. I don't know what that is. Collecting seashells, probably getting to see the family at the important occasions. Just drifting through that sound too bad it does if you continue to be senseless and not consider the God of this world the God of this universe the one who deserves thanks because verse 7 says this at the end of it described this wicked people springing up describing these workers of iniquity flourishing that they are result, the end result for them is that they may be destroyed. All over. Finished. And it's a scary, scary thought. Psalm 37 verses 1 to 3 puts it like this. Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity. For they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. That's what you were called to do this evening, is feed on his faithfulness. When we get to verse 8, we would cry out with the psalmist, knowing the kind of the, these two opposites of how amazing our God is and what he has saved us from, this perishing world. And we say, but you, Lord, are on high, back to worshiping, back to praising the Lord. For behold, your enemies, that is the, the workers of iniquity, that is the, the wicked, O Lord. For behold, your enemies shall perish, and all the workers of iniquity shall be scattered. 
You can't miss this. There's a reason why the psalmist repeats it time and time again is because you need to, uh, the Bible needs to repeat itself time and time again to get it drummed into our thick skulls, certainly into my thick skull. Time and time again, I have forgotten. I have become senseless. I have become foolish when I should be giving thanks to the Lord. Verse 10 talks about this wonderful promise for us. It says this, but my horn, that is my strength, you have exalted like a wild ox. Now what's quite amazing about this animal that it's trying to describe is that we don't know what this animal is. In other versions, in older versions, it describes it as a unicorn because there is no other way of describing this, what, this animal. It's a huge beast. It's a strong, strong, huge beast. There is one horn. And this is, this is, all, this is the, all, we, all, all we know about it. The, the Bible refers to it time and time again. And this particular translation is decided to hone in on ox, but the reality is it's not enough. But the horn of this particular animal was its strength. That is what helped it to guard against whatever it was that was chasing it. But my strength, you have exalted like a wild ox. It is the Lord that has given us the strength to do this life. And very often the temptation is is that we try to do this of our own strength. But back to the work of God. Back to coming to what is the gospel all about is about freeing us from ourselves, freeing us from our own strength, and bringing us into God and giving us the Spirit and living in the Spirit. I have been anointed with fresh oil. So often it was the case when the Israelites had experienced a victory or when they were ever being welcomed into um, a home or something like that, they would be anointed with fresh oil. And this is this beautiful symbol of us being welcomed into God's family and having this fresh oil poured over us as a means of saying, you have overcome this perishing world. Down to verse 12, where we have the promises given to us. It talks about the righteous shall flourish, as opposed to what we read in verse 7 about how we see in this world the workers of iniquity flourishing, them flourishing, them springing up. But here in verse 12, we have the righteous. The righteous shall flourish like a palm tree, he shall grow like a cedar. In Lebanon, I don't believe it's any accident that last Sunday morning, Ben was talking about a tree in Psalm chapter 1, and then on Tuesday evening we had Steve who <clears throat> spoke from Psalm 1 as well, and then in Psalm 1 we have this, "Ye shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. 
Here we have this tree which is flourishing. Here it shall grow like the cedar and lemon. And that is this huge, massive, strong tree with deep roots. And those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of God. Here is a promise that if you plant yourself in the house of God, with God's people, you will flourish. Spiritually, you will flourish. (coughs) That is a promise from God to you. You want to flourish in the, the, the way that means the most, the way that means everything, and that is spiritually plant yourself in the house of God. <coughs> and the promise of God's word to you is that you shall flourish. And in verse 14, it gives us this also, this beautiful promise that they shall still bear fruit in old age. Beautiful promise, and especially in today's world where the elderly are thought of as, you know, a problem, as an issue. We've heard this over some key votes recently. Why is it that the old people should be, have the same vote? They're going to be dead soon. Why should they have the same power and the, and the same vote as the young people who have to live with the, the results of whatever the election is, whatever the decision is? <coughs> heard this time and time again. And a world which is growing more and more in that way, where it's euthanasia is becoming more and more of a problem, and coming more and more to the front of not really understanding the value of those who are older. Here we have a promise from the Word of God that they shall bear fruit in their old age, that as they are planted in the house of God, they will continue to bear fruit. I've had the privilege in my life to know a number of godly people and watch them as they have left this scene of time, see them die well. And I tell you, there is nothing that has inspired my faith more outside of the Scriptures than watching people die well. Those who are of old age, I remember my Bible class teacher, Billy Caven, died a number of years ago now. But there are so many stories that I have in my mind that I often go to that inspire me. I remember one particular instance I think I've told this before. I went to see him. He suffered with Parkinson's. There he was, crippled in his armchair. And as I said, Uncle Billy, how are you today? He said, Josh, it's not been a good day. Struggled with this, struggled with that. But Josh, when I think of what my Savior did for me, it pales into insignificance. And he wanted to talk about his Savior. And that's what we did. We spent time talking about the Lord. There he was in pain. There his future, as it were, from the world's point of view, is bleak. It's, it's obsolete. It's not, he's not worth much now. Can't do much now. But to me, he bore fruit. To me, he's given me something which will go with me till the day I forget it or to the day I die. I've got grandparents who inspire me on a daily basis and their faith in the Lord and the fruit that they show in their lives. They shall bear fruit in old age. It's one of the things which I I love about being part of a church. Well, I can say this because she's not here. She might not hear this either. 
<clears throat> one of the things that I find really lovely is when we get to a Tuesday night prayer meeting and Audrey's there, she's always there. She plays that piano. And you know what? There's something that I want my daughter Elsa is that I don't know if this would happen. I don't know if the Lord would make this happen. But in 2100, when Elsa's 80 years old and I'm well with the Lord, if the Lord would make it possible that he would open up the clouds, as it were, and make me look down on a Tuesday night as Elsa, 80 years of age, is at the prayer meeting on a Tuesday night ready to play the piano. That's what I want for her more than anything else in this world. It's to be planted in the house of God. It's to be bearing fruit in the house of God even in her old age. They shall be fresh and flourishing. The promise of God to his people. And so we have this very clearly laid out for us in this beautiful psalm that it is good to give thanks to the Lord. It is good to give thanks to the Lord because what he has done for his Works, what he has saved us from, this perishing world. There was a time, brothers and sisters, when you were senseless, when you were foolish. There was a time when I was senseless and I was foolish and I was all about the things of this world and the six inches in front of my face. But now I can enjoy the promises of God. Now he's invited me into his house. Now I am planted, praise God, in his house and by his will. I will bear fruit even in my old age. And all of this brings us to a place in verse 15 where we declare with the psalmist to declare that the Lord is upright. We go back to that place of praise and worship. He is my rock. He is my rock. And there is no unrighteousness in him. Sammy Rutherford, let me finish with this famous preacher in the 1600s in Scotland. He wrote many letters, beautiful letters. And in one of them, he wrote this. He said, see that Christ is your foundation to your profession. The sore wind and rain will not wash away his building. Christ's work has no less date than to stand forever. And that is what we stand upon. And that is why Tonight, on the Sabbath day, it is good to give thanks. It is good to praise the name that is above all other names, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And we're going to do that now. God willing, through the final hymn that we have, praise my soul, the King of heaven. To his feet thy tribute bring, ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. Who like me his praise should sing? Praise him, praise him, praise him, praise him. Praise the everlasting King.
Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God our Saviour, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen.